Hello fellow adventurers and welcome to the Nerd Lab, where we transform our gaming passion into incredible game designs and learn how to nerd like a boss. My name is Marvin and I am an ambitious game designer on my quest to develop a cooperative fantasy card game. For this podcast, my vision is to take you with me on this exciting journey. Together we will explore the secrets of different game mechanics and reach the next level as a game designer. In today's episode of the Nerd Lab, I have an incredible guest for you. His game has an impressive rating of 8.3 on BoardGameGeek. Um, it is one of the best examples of asymmetric games, which somehow coincidentally happens to be our main topic today. Um, but he did not only invent a board game, he also created an entire civilization from the scratch known as the Dahan. And also more than that, um, he created uh, more than a dozen of spirits that helped the Dahan to defend their island against the evil invaders who want to colonize their land. The game I speak of is, of course, Spirit Island, and the brain behind all of this epicness is Eric Reuss. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thank you so much, Marvin. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, today we want to um, talk about asymmetry in games, and um, I'm very proud to have you on board for that topic because you you are a real master of that craft, um, with Spirit Island being one of the games that are mentioned very often in that context. But before we start, can you please introduce yourself and tell the listeners a little bit about how you ended up in the industry? Sure. Uh, my name is Eric Royce. I grew up playing sort of standard family board games with my family. Uh, always made games. I like made my own roll and move when I was young and then made my own RPGs when I was a teenager. Uh, and then in college discovered Magic the Gathering which was a uh, formative influence in many ways. Uh, after that, uh, found the world of Eurogames through El Grande, and one of those years eventually decided, huh, you know, I've been making games now for a really long time. Maybe I should start looking towards publishing them, which is kind of how I got into it all and uh, spent a number of years sort of honing the skills and then started making things and talking to publishers. Great. So when did you start to create your own games? So really with, a, with the idea of publishing them. I started sort of working towards that in, I think, the late 90s. But at the time, I felt at that moment, like I felt like my games had the potential for it, but weren't quite there yet. Uh, I, I saw games out there published, which were, you know, I felt like, oh, I can do a game which is about that good. But, uh, you know, but maybe a game that good, you know, isn't going to be certain to be published. Maybe it was just chance that this one got published. Uh, so I need to make games which are really, really good in order to like, you know, have a better shot at it. So I sort of practiced and made games and, and had fun with them and thought, okay, this is, this is good. And then made another game and then, okay, this is better and did a lot of iteration, uh, uh, on a lot of different games. I started focusing more towards it probably around 2006, 2007. Uh, I managed to shift to part-time on my job and was able to bring more time to bear on board game design. And I had one or two designs which didn't go anywhere, and then Fealty, my first published design, was picked up by Asmadi Games. And then after that, I had sort of two games in the pipe. Uh, one was Spirit Island, and the other was a game which eventually became Science or Die, Uh, and both of those were my furthest along prototypes when I had kids, and everything slowed down. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure it did. Yeah, yeah. So Spirit Island then took, you know, many years to get to completion, and Science or Die is not published yet, but hopefully very soon. It is signed, and uh, I'm hoping to see it come out soon. 
Yeah, that's great. So because I have already one listener question about uh, Science or Die, uh, the question oh, great. the question is uh, when it will come out. Ah, uh, that is not under my control. I don't know exactly. I am hoping soon. Uh, it's signed with Gray Fox. They say it's going to be maybe their next Kickstarter. Uh, I, I, I am not entirely sure. But I know I've seen art for it. I have seen uh, uh, it is a game which can be played either with uh, uh, an app for sort of full experience or a plain timer if you don't feel like using an app. Uh, and I have like seen the initial version of the app, played it with the publisher at the last con I was at. I'm very excited. Okay, can you can you give us a bit more of the detail what the game is about for science or die yeah, sure. for science, science or die, die. Yeah. science or die is a cooperative real-time dexterity strategy game uh the strategy is mostly spatial it is your the theme is that you are uh a company attempting to cure a number of deadly diseases in real time uh so that you can finally have a coffee break because this is sort of set in a slightly dystopian near future Uh, where people can, you know, whip out uh, new versions of the disease libraries with their 3D molecular printers. Uh, and so there are entire agencies that just keep us safe from those things, overworked, like many of us. And so you are playing cards to design cures. These cards have pictures of blocks, and then once you design the cure using the cards, you have to physically build what you have designed using wooden blocks. Uh, so if there's a structure which is very hard to build, that is entirely your fault because you designed, you know, you sort of hoist on your own petard, as the saying goes. Uh, And then by curing diseases, you earn insight, uh, which is sort of a, a, uh, represented abstractly by a tile puzzle, which you're trying to arrange in real time to figure out what is in common between all these diseases so that you can make a master cure and finally get a lunch break. <laughs> that sounds very interesting. <laughs> It's, uh, it is 15 minutes of intense fun and uh, triumph and tragedy as things stay up or don't. What is the targeting group for that game? You can play it with a family. But if you play it with like if you play it with younger kids, uh, then well, I'd say you don't want to play it with a kid who's younger than maybe seven or eight. My my seven year old cheerfully will play it, uh, but not with a timer. Hmm? Uh, if you can okay. sort of you can play it on a much more lighter, untimed level, and that works fine for him. Uh, he really enjoys it. Uh, it is designed. It's a the the card portion. It's designed for people who enjoy sort of. Thinky games, it has a strong real-time element, but it's not pure speed. There is also thought, which has to be applied, because when you're designing things with the mm -hmm. cards, then uh, you can design something very quickly, which may then be extremely hard to build. And maybe by taking 20 more seconds when you're designing it, you could have made it much easier to build and still fulfill all the constraints you need to fulfill. So you want to be sort of uh, uh, strategic about it as well as uh, fast about it. So there's sort of a, a trade-off there. Mm. Yeah, most dexterity games that that we play um, are kids' game that we play with our our kids together. And um, mm -hmm. yeah, I was thinking about that. Um, my kids are a little bit, well, maybe a little bit too too young for that at the moment. But this could be a game for the future for us. Mm -hmm. And also, the blocks are just fun to play with. Yeah. Um, and then you have this other little game called Spirit Island that got a little bit of uh, yes. attraction uh, in the market. Um, Uh, maybe you can give us a short introduction into Spirit Island as well. Sure. Uh, in Spirit Island, you and your fellow players, it's cooperative, are playing spirits of a remote island, elemental spirits, spirits of the land. You coexist alongside the first peoples of that island, the Dahan, who have been there for many centuries, probably more than a millennia. And over that time, you and they have worked out how to live reasonably peaceably as neighbors. Then... 
one decade, new humans show up in large ships. And at first you think, oh, okay, more humans. We're going to have to deal with some more humans, but that's okay. But these new humans start cutting the forest and burning the land and colonizing far more rapidly than the Dahan ever did when they first showed up. And in the blink of an eye, from a spirit's perspective, they're starting to overrun the island. You are attempting to throw the colonizing invaders back and keep them from destroying you and uh, your Dahan friends. And so it's sort of an anti-colonial, uh, it's advertised, I believe, as a settler destruction board game. And um, the really interesting part of um, about Spirit Island is that you are not playing the uh, the people wanting to colonize uh, the the continent because you you're playing the opposite there and this is yes. something that I that I really enjoyed and heard a lot of people um, enjoyed playing maybe one one question that is not uh, directly about the gameplay it's more about um, the world so um, it's also a listener question um, and I ask it because it just fits right now um, How did you design the Dahan and where does the, the word come from? Because, because it, it really, it, it resonates with someone. If you heard the Dahan, that's, that sounds like a really cool name for, for a civilization. Thank you. Uh, so where did, how did I design the Dahan? The Dahan, the Dahan got more research than the spirits proper by about an order of magnitude. Because for the spirits, I was trying to make up things which were evocative of story and myth and legend but without being sourced to any particular uh, peoples. And I was mostly just, you know, coming up with those sort of as they, I would, you know, meditate about nature and think about, okay, all right, you know, what might a spirit of the lightning be like or a spirit of the river? Uh, for the Dahan, I wanted to be really careful because I wanted to make a culture which was a plausibly realistic island culture. The Dahan are not magical. They are human beings. They're people. Uh, and I wanted them to be plausible people. Uh, the, but I also didn't want to just take any existing people and use their culture whole cloth. So I did a bunch of research, went to the public library, and one of my friends who was getting her history PhD gave, you know, got me some articles out of JSTOR sort of about a variety of island peoples and mostly as many as much as I could surveys of them where it's like, uh, you know, I read a book about the tattooing practices of uh, a number of cultures across Oceania, all the way across the Pacific. And so I set out to sort of find general trends so that I could then come up with a culture which fit within those trends without being taken from a particular place. Uh, and so after sort of immersing myself in that, I, I did what I did sort of drew up a, cultural document of uh, a few dozen pages about like, you know, what they're, what they were like as a peoples and, you know, uh, their, their, their government and their art and their language and uh, went with it from there. As for their name that came out of, I don't have a full like consum language or not consum, uh, conlang constructed language for them. Uh, but I did figure out uh, one of my friends, a couple of my friends were uh, linguists and one of them, gave me a list of phonemes, which were sort of plausible phonemes from around the world, because I didn't want to localize them to being, you know, yes, they're in Polynesia, or yes, they're in the Caribbean, or yes, they're an island off the coast of Africa. Uh, and so they gave me some phonemes, which I could use. And I went for something which was sort of short, used the, the sounds of their language, uh, and, you know, 
not close to anything which was too like an English word or uh, something derogatory in another language. And as it turned out, that took a long time to do. I expected it to take an afternoon. It took more like two or three weeks because uh, when you are using phonemes common to the entire world and going for a short, simple name, that word is going to see a lot of use across the globe. And so like my first, I don't know, 50 ideas were all, you know, the name of an existing peoples mm. or the name of a prominent river in some part of the world or, uh, you know, a swear in Finnish or, you know, some other thing like that. Uh, and so but finally I found Han and that worked. Uh, it does have meanings in one or two other languages. But uh, I've been told by speakers of those languages that it is not a derogatory meaning, so that's okay. That sounds like real scientific work that you spend there for this, uh, for not the theme of the but, game. But yeah, uh, yeah, research. Yes, I wish I kept a bibliography. I was it was when my son was two, and so I was sort of snatching the moments I could. And I, I sadly uh, did not manage to keep track of every book that I consulted because yeah. now I'm like, where did I find this fact? I have no idea. So I failed on my academic uh, uh, citations, but uh, did at least some research. Then it would have been scientific. But now that's only research. It still was a very good time that you spent there because the theme of the game is great. Um, and that brings me to the next question. Um, what was there first? Did you start with the theme in mind when you went to the library or reading all the uh, chase store articles were you designing the theme for a game that you were about to make or did you uh, already have the all the mechanics at that point in time um, and try to put a theme on them for doing the dahan research oh, that gen was, in general maybe for yeah, the okay, game yeah. Yeah. for the dahan re by the time i was doing dahan research everything was pretty well established initially It was a marriage of the two things. I had an idea for both a theme and a mechanic, and they I sort of brought them. This is often how I design games. I'll have uh, either uh, of sort of, I might have a mechanic, I might have a theme, or I might have a vision of a moment of play. And I'll usually, usually my game ideas come when I get two of those three things and smash them together. Uh, so in this case, it was an idea for a mechanic with... Uh, a mechanic which didn't survive into the end game, actually. It was it was simultaneous hidden action selection with action programming, kind of like RoboRally. Mm -hmm. uh, that was the idea for a co-op to help mitigate the sort of alpha player quarterbacking syndrome, where you know you weren't talking except in generalities about what you played, and then you played your cards, and everything resolved in sort of a pre-established order. Uh, so that was the mechanical idea. And then I had the sort of thematic idea of flipping the script on colonialism, for sort of the the very very highly used you know we are the colonists trope in uh, board game and sort of you know the hobby game market so i sort of put those two together because uh, i'd wanted for a while to make a co-op which was a little meatier back when i first started with the ideas back in the i started serious design work on spirit island in 2012 but i think the initial noodlings around were like 2010 and back then there weren't a lot of heavy co-ops uh Even now, like they tend towards the lighter side, but there's there's more options on, on the heavy co-op side. Uh, but then it was like, yeah, I want a co-op which I can really sink my teeth into, and there just aren't that many choices. So I guess I got to design it. Yeah, great. And um, at what point in time did you did you decide that it would be some kind of asymmetric game or would have asymmetric components in the game? Was this an idea that you had in the beginning, or was it the, this something that you Added during the process, or maybe at the end. 
from the very, very beginning, the idea was that it would be asymmetric. Uh, all the player positions would be different. Uh, my initial working title for the game was Genius Loci, the Spirit of Place. Uh, I abandoned that because it is specifically a Eurocentric term, and so you know it's it's. Uh, so I'm like, okay, all right, no, wrong mythology, uh, doesn't work, and. Instead, but but since the very beginning, I knew that you know, okay, the spirit of uh, uh, a sunny meadow and the spirit of a raging river are going to be doing very different things and attempting to fight off the invaders in very different ways. So from from moment number one, that was baked in. Uh, did a lot of brainstorming on different ways natures of spirit, uh, uh, the the spirits of nature could could fight off the invaders because I was trying to think of like you know what are all the possible different ways. Uh, I think it was like seven or eight pages long. <laughs> uh, yeah, but maybe before we dive too deep into um, asymmetric uh, components mm -hmm. and games and whatsoever, um, maybe it makes sense to um, define the term. So, yes. um, what is asymmetry in games for you? What does it mean? For me, it means that the players, once asymmetry is in a game, that's the players have positions which differ in what they can do, which is a very vague, fuzzy term. So you can say that like even games which start off symmetric become asymmetric as the players differentiate their positions. If it's a game where you can build different buildings to get different upgrades, then the player positions become asymmetric. But usually if you're talking about like this is an asymmetric game, it usually means that it's asymmetric right from the beginning, not as of mid-game. It's, it's games which uh, start off with fundamentally different capabilities. Uh, that can be a huge range. It can be like, everybody is playing basically the same game, but some people have, you know, everybody has one little player power which differentiates what they can do in some way. They're a little better at something. All the way to games where the players are pursuing fundamentally different activities. Uh, Where, like, uh, you know, one of the, the classic, you know, uh, the, the classic examples, well, a very classic example would be uh, Neftafel, I think it's pronounced, uh, which is a very, very old game where uh, a player in the middle is trying to get, escape their king off the edge of the board, and the player on the outside has pieces around the outside trying to block the king. Uh, a sort of, you know, 20 years ago, uh, Netrunner was incredibly asymmetric with the, the corporation mm -hmm. attempting to do one thing, and Uh, the, the runner attempting to, to, you know, get into the corporation's vaults and steal things. And then more recently, there's, uh, like, Vast is, I think, you know, perhaps the most asymmetric modern board game I can think of, where literally all the players are playing a completely different game on the same board. Uh, so... Those are what I think of when I think asymmetric games. I have not played Vast, Vast yet, but um, I saw some... Um Videos about it and uh, read about it, and um, it sounds incredible because you some some people can play um, uh, goblins, uh, others mm -hmm. can play knights that play some kind of dungeon crawler that try to kill the the dragon, who can also be played by another player, and yep. I think one player can even be the the dungeon itself. Yes. So. Um, which can collapse at some point in time, as far as I understood it, uh, and that sounds mm -hmm. really like you have a complete different role you have different of course you have yes. different starting perimeters and you have different abilities and you have different goals um and you also have different rules at some point um, yes different rules for, for so. how you play the character or the dungeon and yes. um so as you mentioned asymmetry in 
games is more of a more of a range i would i would call it because it is yes. already asymmetric if you have another character with maybe a different uh type of spells that you can cast different um, abilities um mm -hmm. And then you, on the other end of the spectrum, or maybe the, at the beginning of the spectrum, you maybe only start at another position on the board, um, or can develop differently during the um, during the during the game by making decisions, choosing different um, special abilities. And at the other end of the spectrum, you really have these completely different um, characters that you play, these completely different goals that you have, um, and break the rules in different ways. Where yeah. do you think Spirit Island is on this um, the scale? Uh, I think it is fairly far towards the asymmetric end, uh, not quite as far as Vast. Vast cranks it up to 11, and it brings the advantages and disadvantages of asymmetry up to 11 in that way. Uh, the Spirit Island, I feel like, does asymmetry in a similar way to, uh, say, Root, uh, another modern title, in that in both Spirit Island and Root, there is a core set of systems which everyone is engaging with. In Spirit Island, all the spirits have presence and energy and are playing powers. Uh, in Root, all of the players, asterisk, are dealing with clearings and control and moving units around uh, and building buildings and anybody gets you know one victory point for destroying one, any piece of cardboard which is on the map uh, and everybody's trying to win in in route by getting to 30 victory points so both of both of the two games have a certain grounding level which the asymmetries can interact through uh, but then on top of that they have very different play. Uh, and I'm not going to... The parallel isn't complete. Root does that in a very different way than Spirit Island does. Uh, in, in Spirit Island, it tends to be done via varying power effects, which may be your starting cards, uh, or your innate powers on your spirit panel, uh, or maybe the cards which you choose during play. Uh, the In Root, it's more about faction-specific mechanics, uh, although... Innate powers can shade into that in Spirit Island, uh, and you, you, that, that envelope is pushed a little bit more in uh, Jagged Earth, the upcoming expansion. Uh, there are some spirits which do things that other spirits just don't do. Hmm. Uh, well, that's always true, uh, but they do, they do types of things that other spirits just don't do. For example, uh, uh, one of them, Trickster, uh, has uh, uh, innate power where its uh, resolution involves a random card flip and that is something which you know, like none of the other spirits interact with things in that way at all yeah but isn't that isn't that great that different players can experience the game in a different way because i know when we come back to magic i know that there are so many players who like playing uh in their specific kind of way. Some people like to play um, a discard theme, for example, where they have managed a lot of their cards in their hand, which is something completely yes. different from someone who likes to play with a lot of creatures on the board, for example. And yes. with the asymmetry, you can really achieve uh, that different players can play a game with a different play style. Um, yes. Was this also one of the reasons why you why you chose to put asymmetry in into Spirit Island, or what was the main reason for you to 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 make a game that is asymmetrical? 
I wanted to make it asymmetrical because it was thematic. The different parts of the natural world are all very interestingly different and do things in different ways. They all bring their own sense of their piece of the world with them. And I wanted each of the spirits to reflect that piece of the world, which they were. Uh, the spirits, uh, you know, like vital strength of the earth is, that's not just a name, it is the vital strength of the earth. It may be incarnate or speaking to you in some fashion, but uh, if the earth is damaged, it is damaged. If it is damaged, the earth is damaged. They are on some level, on a metaphysical level, one and the same. But before we go completely past it, I wanted to actually, uh, you mentioned magic, and I wanted to call out magic. It's not often mentioned when asymmetric games get talked about because both players are playing by the same rules, but Magic is incredibly asymmetric if you look at it from the perspective of two players sitting down to play a game. Uh, their decks may do completely different things. If you broaden the definition of game to include deck construction, then it becomes a little less asymmetric because they may have access to similar pools of cards. But unless their collections are the same, it's still asymmetric. And if they're drafting, it's heavily asymmetric. So uh, it's uh, everybody has equal opportunity at things depending you know on, on the format but uh you know once players have a deck down you know you you can get you know apples playing against oranges playing against dragons playing against counter spells yes indeed um that's how i see it as well engine building games for example where you during <clears throat> the game make decisions on how you want to build your engine are <clears throat> also for me asymmetrical they maybe even start um symmetric in a symmetric way, because um, you have the same starting conditions, everyone can maybe acquire the same cards from a marketplace or whatsoever. Um, mm -hmm. But during the game, the players make decisions, and as long as the games progress, they become more different. The games become more asymmetrical. Um, they may, might still have the same goal at the end, but how they achieve this goal can be very different for each player. Mm -hmm. That's how I envision it as well. And But then you have these other games um for example i don't know if you've played it um um xcom for example the board game i've played i played the original computer game way back mm -hmm. in the day but i've not played the board game the board game is also very asymmetrical um mm -hmm. because you have different roles and you have to take care of completely different things um so one for example if you know the computer game you know what you have all, all have to manage in this kind of game you have to to manage yes. your, your base for example you have to manage um the missions you have to manage science you have to um construct the um uh, the weapons uh, and all of this different are different player roles the one is responsible for science one is responsible for the missions one is uh, responsible to shoot down the the ufos and um you all do this with completely different abilities there is almost no overlap there is some but what the game has is some kind of constraint that combines all of this together so this maybe this is something that is important for asymmetric games i don't know maybe you can tell us more about that but um you somehow have to make sure that the people are still playing together that they are not playing yes. their own game without any influence on the other parts of the game and the other roles um, and yes. the, in xcom for example it is done by um i think it is done by one player who is um, responsible for the for the money for the economy and this player has to give um 
the give money to to the different roles to the different players and they are then allowed to spend this on their tasks and um, so you never have enough economy for all of them of course and you have to make your point why you need this this money and you have to make it under time pressure yes and this is how how the different roles are at least to some point um, connected there are other things in the game so what do you what do you think um how or is it important to connect this um these different roles and what are maybe good ideas or, or good approaches to do though I think it is incredibly important, especially in a competitive game. Uh, so, in a you know, what, some games are called you know multiplayer solitaire, and whether or not that's true, uh, multi, even if a game truly is multiplayer solitaire, like uh, uh, where people's moves literally don't affect each other, like uh, Take It Easy or Welcome To, uh, where you can have a game with a hundred people because they're all just sort of playing from the same original source of randomness. Uh, there, there's no player interaction, but because everybody's playing the same game with the same source of randomness, they all feel like they've been on a journey together. Whereas the heavier the asymmetry gets, especially starting asymmetry, the less and less you feel like you have in common with what the other players are doing. You're playing a fundamentally different game. And if that game has no points of contact with the other players, you may be sitting at the same table. But if you're sitting, but if but if you're not actually doing the same thing, and what you're doing has no bearing on what other the other players are doing, then it doesn't it doesn't feel nearly as much like a group experience. Uh, I think the constraints on that are a little bit eased for a cooperative game because there, at least, you're interested in how each player is contributing to the overall problem, even if there were zero player interaction, you would at least be sort of engaged and invested in somebody else's position and you know glancing over to see how they were doing uh but even so i think that 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 you've hit upon a fundamental truth of asymmetry which is that mechanical distinctness between different players leads to different play experiences which in the extreme can cause a certain amount of feeling like you're not doing the same activity and that you want to design your game to accommodate for that to hook people together and make sure they do feel like they're playing the same activity Yes, and what do you think is the role of hidden information in all of that? So in in some of these asymmetric games, you have information that is available for all of all of the players, and in some you have information that is also asymmetric, because uh, each of the players, for example, in Gloomhaven has their own individual goal for um, uh, for for the for a quest. Yes. That is hidden and only known by one of the players. So this is, adds also some kind of asymmetry to the game, uh, but more, I don't know, it, it can also be used in a, in a, as a cooperative aspect maybe, but um, in that case it's also a bit of semi-co-op in, in Gloomhaven, I would say, because um, the hidden information uh, can lead to situations in which you have to choose between your individual goal and the overall group goal. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what do you what do you think um, is the role of hidden information in asymmetric games, and um, maybe you have other ideas how you can use it instead of um, only a, a individual goal? Well, let's see. I've thought more about the role of hidden information in co-ops than in asymmetric games in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, in co-ops, it's really great for creating a feeling of differentiation among players uh, because if everyone has access to all the information, that makes it easier to sort of uh, uh, group solve the problem as opposed to each player feeling like they are a distinct position 
uh, within the game with their own individual agency as opposed to sort of group agency doing it, making all the decisions together, which I know some groups enjoy doing. Like the, I, I have some friends who that is their preferred mode of co-op play. They like making uh, sort of doing everything as a team, but it is not everybody's preferred mode of co-op play. Some people sort of prefer a more uh, taking turns or collaborative approach for asymmetry. Well, one thing is that asymmetry is in some ways not hidden. Hidden information is fully obscured. Public information is mostly unobscured. But then there's a, there is actually, it's not a binary state. There is a realm mm -hmm. between, and Spirit Island uses this, of information which is public, but sufficiently complex that you don't bother processing it because it's easier for somebody else to do so. And I think either hidden information or uh, just, uh, and, and when you have asymmetry, then that is a form of, you know, if, if you're playing a completely different sort of process than I am, if you're playing a different game, if your game has different mechanics and a different feel to it, then that information is going to be a little more opaque to me than if you were doing the exact same thing as I was, except just with a special power. So asymmetry can feed into uh, information opacity, which in turn can then have a bearing on how co-ops play out. I haven't given deep thought on how it affects competitive games. Let me think about that for a second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that is really what where I wanted the conversation to go to because okay. um, you have a lot of uh, if you have a lot of different roles and um, abilities and maybe completely different hands of cards and uh, mm -hmm. powers, then you add a lot of complexity to the game because you do not only need to learn one role. Um, if you want to understand everything that's going on on the table, you need to, you, you should know everything, um, or you need to learn everything, every part of the game. So that is pretty much what you explained as um, um, opacity of the information. And that, from my perspective, makes it, um, of course, more interesting because it's, mm -hmm. it, it creates a deep game experience, um, but it also makes it a little bit more complex to learn a game, maybe, if you want yes. to master it at least. Maybe it's, yep. at least if you want to understand everything. Um, sure. But it also is um, it's a very nice way to create a game that is, uh, as I said, it is deep and creates a lot of um, tactical abilities that you can um, that you can use. And the question that I have is, how do you how do you see it? Do you see this opacity and this complexity more of a of a good thing for a game? That is created by all of these uh, different roles, or do you see it more as a as a bad thing because it's maybe adds a lot of complexity and um, makes it more complex for people to learn the game? Ah, I think it's it brings both to the table, and whether it's good or bad depends on what you're trying to make. The I tend to like sort of more complex meteor games, so uh, for me, oftentimes it's good. But, you know, there's there's different scales. I don't know. And it depends on how, how complex it makes the game. Uh, there's one uh, heavily asymmetric game, uh, Here I Stand. It's a, I can't remember exactly when it was published, but it's a GMT game. Um, it's kind of like a card-driven war game, but not exactly. Uh, here, yeah, 2006. Uh, but it's set during the Reformation, and, you know, you have, like, four different sort of geopolitical factions and uh, then two uh, religious factions 
and they're all occupying this massive map of Europe. And it creates an intense and very long experience, which is awesome. I've done it once, but it's also like there's a lot there and it's not something, you know, I've only played it once and I probably won't play it again for until my kids are a lot older and I have a lot more time. <laughs> uh, the, uh, so it's, it's really about what you're trying to make uh, and not, not making things more complex needlessly is always good, but the right sort of complexity can be intriguing and pleasing. Um, I feel like also uh, there's, also, what plays into this is sort of your your target for a given game of how much complexity some ga- so, like some gamers. If uh, if you say, oh, there's this deck of cards and your opponent is going to get to draw from them, it's like special to your opponent. Only they get these cards. There are some gamers who just won't. They're like, oh, okay, great. They have some special powers. There'll be some gamers who want to generally know what they do. Like, oh, okay, those usually let them do more powerful attacks and occasionally save their life. Okay, great. Uh, and then there will be some gamers who want to know every single card in that deck so that they know what all the possibilities are. And so hiding information in a competitive asymmetric game, the effect it will have will depend on what player profile it is. For some of the players, it will simplify things and speed up the game. For other players, it will possibly frustrate them and possibly slow down the game if they demand to, know, to look over all of them before play. So there's a, a little bit of sort of knowing your audience and uh, uh, I mean, or guessing at your audience. You can never know your entire audience. Yeah, but you can keep them in mind when you design your games yes. and, and you should Absolutely. do that. Um, yep. two, two more things that came to my mind um, in the meantime is um, another in- example for hidden information in asymmetric games is the game Bang. Mm-hmm. Where some people are um, have different roles, but the roles are unknown for for some of the players or most of the players. Mm-hmm. That creates a completely new gameplay, I would call it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing is, if you have this kind of complexity by having different roles um, and this opacity opacity of information, um, this also has an influ- influence on the alpha player problem. Because it it gets way more difficult for um, for a player to um, control the entire entire game because he needs to understand all of the different spirits, for example, mm-hmm. in the game. Yes, very um, much so. Yeah, and I think in, in Spirit Island it's also more complicated because um, a lot of things happen simultaneously, and huh. that's also maybe something that um, really helps to mitigate the alpha player problem. Yes, I. Uh, in part because, I mean, that that is a little bit of complexity uh, helping to mitigate it, but just as much what it does is for people who uh, tend to alpha because they want something to think about during their turns, uh, having everybody's turns go simultaneous, meaning it, gives some, it gives them their own turn to think about so that they're mm-hmm. not sort of sitting there idle, like watching every, somebody else's move like a hawk going, oh, wait, 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 why don't you do that instead? Maybe we we can we can focus a little bit on that because we um, on the benefits of asymmetry. We talked a lot yes. about it already, um, but maybe we can narrow it down a little bit more. So what you mentioned already is um, for that you wanted to have asymmetry because of flavor, for example. That is something that you can greatly implement with um, with asymmetry in a game, um, and this also leads directly into um, personal expression, for example, um, where 
the idea is that a player can really um, match their play style um, by by playing a, a certain role in the game. Yes. And asymmetric, asymmetry really helps to express um, themselves. Um, yes. What are other benefits of asymmetry that we maybe didn't touch already? You can create game dynamics and experiences with asymmetry, which I'm not... It's not that they're impossible necessarily to make without asymmetry, but like some of the things you can do, especially in competitive asymmetric games, uh, if you look at the... Uh, I mean, like for example, take like uh, the Resistance or or Werewolf. Uh, while those aren't my prime, my personal cup of tea, generally speaking, the type of the asymmetry there in terms of the information difference between factions and the suspicion and mistrust there, because of that asymmetry in goals and especially information, creates a type of feeling which is tricky to do without asymmetry so you can create some some really interesting unique experiences with asymmetry uh the not just limited to two sides either like if you uh, in the um in here i stand which i mentioned before you have the sort of religious war going on at the same time as you have a political war and the uh political players can share spaces with you know a, a given space can be under the control of one political factor and one religion and so they sort of share territory in this interesting way and if the game were fully symmetric that like it would be much harder to achieve that sort of thing you can do very interesting things when the players are playing by different rules uh another thing which can be balancing asymmetric games can be a lot harder in many ways uh in fact i would say in general it is going to be harder but Sometimes, in some specific instances, it's easier because when factions or player positions have their own rules, then you can tweak the rule of a single faction and not affect the other factions directly. There are ripple effects, uh, particularly if the game is one where um, some asymmetric games with multiplayers depend on a particular balance of the factions, uh, chaos in the old world, uh, the games where Korn is in the game, uh, Korn is a, a, a sort of the blood god and tends to just go like, you know, gain, gain this primary benefits from just killing everything. Uh, and the when Korn is in the game, you can expect that Korn is going to be killing everything and that the other players will need to some extent, you know, be aware of how bloodthirsty Uh, powerful corn can get and sort of mitigate that while corn is trying to keep another faction in check and you know there's this sort of uh, uh multiple factions leaning against each other in a very specifically arranged way so that the whole thing is balanced and doesn't tip over and make one side too powerful uh in games like that then changing how powerful one faction is is going to have a very strong effect on the game dynamics as a whole but others where uh, other games where you have uh, sort of more general, all right, like this faction should be roughly power level X according to this amount of effectiveness in the game, but we're not specifically relying on each faction being in the game. Uh, 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 we're not relying on faction X to hold faction Y in check and factions Y to hold faction Z in check because X or Y might not be in a given game. Then uh, making one tweak to a given faction may not have as profound an impact on the balance of the game as a whole, and you might be able to make these sort of in-isolation changes to one asymmetric component, which don't bleed over to others. Yeah, that makes absolute sense. Um, maybe you can elaborate a little bit on how this 
affected the design phase of Spirit Island? So was was it for you often more difficult to balance the game or uh, did you really experience that effect that um, it was easier to balance because uh, if you changed one spirit, it didn't really affect the other ones? For Spirit Island, it was mostly easier. Uh, changing a single spirit generally doesn't impact the other spirits too much. It does mean you'll get occasional really strong synergies. And those are something which I try to keep an eye on. But for the most part, if I make river surges in sunlight uh, more powerful, it's not going to change how vital strength of the earth plays, even alongside river surges in sunlight. Uh, so for Spirit Island, I feel like it was a, a net benefit. The, the primary difficulty in balancing Spirit Island was there was, for the initial game, there was no set balance point. The adversaries were in flux. The spirits were in flux. Like, how good should a given spirit be? Didn't get, it wasn't a single, there was no single point I could point to and be like, okay, a spirit should be able to handle this. It was this slow convergence over time of, you know, sort of slowly padding, like, oh, this spirit feels more powerful than that one under most circumstances. So, you know, which one should, should one be moved down or the other up? I don't know. Let's see how the other ones all feel. Okay. And it's trying to slowly sort of move them all towards the mean over time. Also, I found that I was specifically more tolerant of, uh, heavy synergies between spirits when there was a strong thematic reason to do so. For example, the synergy between river and ocean uh, was very strong and not deliberately designed in. It happened as an organic part of designing the two spirits asymmetrically. Uh, but then once we noted it, it's like, well, that makes perfect sense. The river feeds into the ocean. Okay, mm -hmm. fine. And so we don't feel like we need to change anything about that. Uh, similarly for uh, Heart of the Wildfire and Spread of Rampant Green. Uh, because Heart of the Wildfire is supposed to be a uh, child spirit of Spread of Rampant Green and Volcano Looming High. So it's like, oh, okay, yeah, they work well together. That, you know, that's totally great. One example or one other benefit of asymmetry is what you just mentioned, the uh, synergy that you can create be between these different roles that uh, create a lot of fun for me because I love to combine things to create something that is better than uh, the, uh, the sum of its parts. So yes. what, I, what I really, really like is these diverse strategies that you can create by having asymmetric roles in a game. And yes. this leads into another uh, listener question, which I'm really happy that I have so many because I can uh, put them in here all um, in between the interview, is um, what are your favorite uh, spirit combinations oh usually <laughs> something i haven't tried recently uh i don't have a, i've been asked before if i have a single favorite spirit and the answer to that is no that is derived empirically from uh after spirit island came out for for a while i just played the game for fun uh i i still really enjoy it just as a as a leisure activity uh even even aside from you know development and design and After I looked back at my logged plays, I'm like, oh, which spirits do I play more often? And the answer is I play them all about the same amount, except the low-complexity ones that I play a little bit more, uh, because partly because I'm playing with new players sometimes, and partly because it's kind of neat to try and find alternate strategy paths with uh, spirits which seem simple on the surface, but then you go, oh, wait, but you can take it in this interesting direction. For combinations, I like trying things I haven't tried before, uh, and... Even in the just the base game, you know, with 
12... You know, well, I, I say just the base game. The base game plus Branch and Claw plus the, the promo spirit. So existing published spirits is 12 spirits, and that gives for like a three-player game, what, uh, 12 times 11 times 10 divided by 6 is like, you know, 200 mumble uh, spirit uh, combinations. So... Like, you know, I haven't seen all the combos. It's just I haven't had the time to playtest every single combination of spirits. Uh, and so I get to see teams which I haven't seen before. And now with the, you know, over the last year and a half, two years, I've been playtesting uh, new spirits for Jagged Earth. And once you throw those in the mix, then the number of combinations gets huge. And uh, this is uh, an immense advantage in terms of what you were talking about in terms of like having new feels and new dynamics and new experiences and discovering, Oh, this spirit works really well with that spirit, especially when this thing happens in the game. Uh, but it also makes playtesting a lot harder. So I couldn't get you an answer from you about the, uh, your favorite uh, combination. No, my favorite combination is something I haven't played lately. Okay. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, I, uh, you know, it might be that I go, Oh, I haven't been in a river ocean game in ages. And I'm not sure I've ever been in a river ocean, uh, serpent game. So let's, let's try that. That would be really neat. because it's a, you know, parts of that I know. Uh, I, I, you know, I know I've played, uh, uh, any pair of those before, but I haven't tried all three of those before. And so I kind of have an idea what it will feel like, but I don't know for sure. And it's neat to find out and to see where things go, especially as things diverge, because the spirits start off with their own unique asymmetry, but then can become more so depending on what power cards you draw into. Spirit Island has has both sorts, the initial asymmetry, as well as the during the game you grow and change. And you also mentioned something that I consider also a benefit from asymmetry because um, you talked about that there are some spirits that are more complex than others. Yes. And that is something that you can achieve with asymmetry. You can create a, a role or a, a character or a spirit um, or maybe even powers or cards that are easier than others um, that, you yes. can, that you can use for, um, for players that just start out with the game. For teaching, mm -hmm. for example. Yes. So, have you absolutely. designed spirits with with that in mind? Uh, yeah, in, in particular, the low complexity ones in the mm -hmm. base game. Uh, they are designed to still be fully fun, fully powerful. You know, they're not weaker spirits. Uh, they are just easier to learn on because they don't have quite as many moving parts. Uh, and in other games where I've been playing around with asymmetry, I found myself doing. Uh, very similar things where it's like, oh, okay, like I can, using this particular rules structure, I can then uh, make these characters, which are super, you know, super simple, good introductions, and then I can really bust loose the complexity and make these more intricate experiences, which will be more fun for people who know the game. And one more benefit that I have on my list, which we didn't touch on, is replayability. Because you yes. have so many different roles, um, you can play it over and over again, and um, I think... The Spirit Island has a lot of replayability. Yes. So we talked a lot about the benefits of uh, asymmetric games. Are there mm -hmm. any costs for adding asymmetry to your game that you would like yeah. to mention? Absolutely. Especially, so uh, a cost is, most of the costs are sort of flip sides of the benefits. Like we talked earlier about how it's early, uh, you know, it, it increases the amount of information out there and sort of the, Uh, uh, opacity of the game state because there may be so many different things going on. So it makes things harder for players to track and may make, may require 
them to learn more rules up front if they want to feel like they know the game. It depends on how the asymmetry is implemented. If it's sort of with special powers, then that may be a little less so. If it's something more like vast, where everybody is literally playing by completely different rules, then there's going to be more about, wait, how does your turn work again? Uh, if players want to try and, and, and track that. Uh, it also makes playtesting harder because you, both because each position needs to be pos tested independently and who you're playtesting that position in concert with, be it uh, on the same side as for a co-op game or against in a competitive game, can affect how well they do if they have particular synergies or anti-synergies or weaknesses or strengths. And so just the volume, you know, the amount of data, useful data you get out of a single playtest in terms of game balance is going to be lower. Now, you know, game balance is not the end-all, be-all. You know, games need to offer more than just balance. They need to offer, like, an amazing experience. And amazing experience uh, includes balance as one of its components, but it's not all that there is. Uh, and for some people, it may not even include that. Depends on what you're looking for. Uh, other, uh, another disadvantage of asymmetry is that you have to come up with more stuff. Mm -hmm. The, you know, not just, not rules, but just things. Like, I was... Uh, what was that? I was listening, like, like if, like the the power decks in Spirit Island, like you know, there's all these different powers and they all need to do different things. There, there's different spirit concepts. Each of them needs to do different things. You know, you need to generate more more data. I guess would be the, the. I tend to mentally think of it as like there's the rules and then there's things which exist within the rules which may modify or break the rules, but which are content. Mm. You know, this is a spirit. This is an adversary. This is a power. And you need to come up with a lot more content when you're doing it asymmetrically because everything is different. Yeah, that's right. And I'm uh, still very impressed with uh, all of the different spirits that you came up with and especially their um, their names because they are, they are awesome. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> you mentioned a lot of them um, already during this podcast today. Yeah, I've been using a lot of shorthands uh, I, I just because I, I know we're uh, – Uh, we have a finite time, and uh, they have long and flowery names. And yeah. if I said them over and over, it would take a long time. Yeah, but the names are, are, are very good. I, I love these uh, these longer names. It's better than just call them water spirit or uh, so earth spirit I've or something like that. Little trivia bit is that for, I briefly did that. I'm like, oh, maybe I should differentiate the uh, uh, low complexity spirits by instead of calling them like lightning swift strike or river mm. surges in sunlight, calling them lightning spirit and river spirit. And I did one playtest that way, and every single playtester said, no, put those back. <laughs> and I was like, okay, all right, that's all right. Yeah, that's maybe a good advice, uh, listening to your playtesters. Oh, yeah. Um, at least if they all agree on something. Yes. So um, maybe yeah. that's a good uh, a good time to uh, to shift a little bit into the design process of, of um, asymmetric games. Uh, let's mm -hmm. consider that some of the listeners are trying to design their own asymmetric games. What would be some kind of advice that you would uh, you would give them um, how they could start with asymmetry in mind? Uh, I'd first sort of suggest thinking about the both the type and amount of asymmetry that they want and in particular then how that plays into the type of feel they're looking for you know are it's very different to take uh sort of okay each player will have a small different power and that will add a little bit of like spice to the role like okay it, uh, where asymmetry is a mild sort of flavoring at the beginning of the dish uh versus something like uh say you know a coin game or 
uh, here I stand, where it's like, okay, these, all these these positions are playing radically differently and have goals which are not exact opposites of each other, but affect each other. Uh, and the game is in many ways about the asymmetry, and it's far more fundamental, and there's a huge amount of it. Um, so, like, like, figure out how much of it you want and what type of it you want. You know, you can, uh, do you want it to be all upfront, but then once you have the upfront asymmetry, everybody then plays according to the same mechanisms? Do you want to have initial game state be identical, but then differentiate over time? And figure out what you want, how you want it to contribute to the feel, and how flexible you are on it. Because your other, you know, your playtesters may come back and say, oh, you know, we really like thing X, but pursuing thing X and giving the playtest, you know, building on what the playtesters say is awesome about the game uh, may require changing like oh okay all right i planned on only having this type of asymmetry but it seems like maybe doing it this other way could be better so sort of figure out where you stand first um once you've done that my advice branches depending on how much asymmetry you want uh if you want just sort of a spice then i'd say design for the general case like design it as a vanilla game with no powers and then at the end, go, okay, what are some, and while you're designing, keep an eye on, oh, here's an interesting thing. That could be an interesting special power to add on later. Like, oh, here's, here's, a, here's a nice role power. Um, if you're designing a game which has asymmetry more fundamentally baked in, that doesn't work as well. And you'll need to sort of set stakes in the ground and be like, okay, for now, this position is going to play like this, and this other position is going to play completely different like that, and just try it out and see which things work, and then take those as your reference points. Um, if you're doing a game, if you're trying to build a, a substructure layer, like uh, Spirit Island has or Root has, where you have loads of asymmetry, but layered on top of certain elements of commonality, then I'd say that some good first steps are to figure out what those elements of commonality are. For Spirit Island, what I did was, in the early, very early uh, days, sit down, like I said earlier, brainstorm like eight pages worth of, here are ways that a spirit of nature could attempt to thwart invaders colonizing their island, just based on all the fairy tales that I've heard and books I've read and stories and movies I've seen, anything. And then I went. One question ahead. in between. Did, yes. At that point in time, did you already have the base game rules up and running when you no. were thinking about that different spirit types? No, not at all. Okay. Uh, I, I had played a little bit around with how the invaders spread and acted, but that was still that was still also very nascent and tentative. Um, I, so what I did, I used this list then, and I went through. I said, okay, what are common themes, what are common threads for how spirits are doing these things? Uh, and, for example, one thread which wove through many of them was some variation on kill the colonists in a variety of ways and in a variety of, of efficacies. But it's like, okay, one way which many different types of spirits could defend their island is by inflicting physical harm upon the invaders. So I need some sort of damage mechanic which multiple different types of spirits are going to want to make use of and from there it's like all right what are other things and then there also were a whole bunch of things which uh i outlined where it's like oh this is a bunch of different ways of convincing the invaders to go where they're going to do less harm uh pushing them out of the vulnerable lands and into the lands which are more resilient limiting their spread 
chasing them off from one area and keeping them confined. So uh, the ability to move the invaders, gather and push powers uh, came out of that. So I used that list to find common threads to build the bedrock on which I built everything else. And uh, not all of the threads came out immediately. Fear didn't come out uh, right off the bat. I had some, you know, always frighten them in different ways. But those early on were all man- were all represented by chasing them off, physically moving mm-hmm. them. And then later on, fear came out. So you won't find everything right away, but it will give you a lot of different subsystems which can be combined in meaningful ways because you have already looked at the thematic things you want to represent in the process of choosing what subsystems to make. That is great advice. That is really, really good advice. And one follow-up question here would be, with how many spirits did you go through the early design phase? Did you have all of them? Did you have maybe just a handful of them? Can you remember? Uh, for oh, do you mean do you mean of the twelve published spirits, how many yes. were in existed the, in the early yes, early in days? the early design phase of the um, of, in the of very the early design phase? Maybe. Somewhere between zero and three. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I knew very early on that I wanted an ocean spirit because I wanted the oceans to sometimes be in play, but not always. It was like it was a really neat way of using, of having that part of the board acquire a new significance depending on what spirits were in play. I believe I had a lightning spirit fairly early on. There was a water spirit early on, but it was not river surges and sunlight right off the bat. What the earliest versions of a water spirit were kind of a murky spirit of bogs trapping people and sort of pulling them down. Uh, some of the thematic associations there ended up going into ocean's hungry grasp. Uh, there, yeah, there were there were there, there have been many spirit concepts which never saw the light of day. Either they got deferred, or in many cases, sort of parts of the concept ended up informing other later spirits. Yeah, somewhere somewhere between zero and three, I think. Okay. Uh, as for how many spirits I went through which never saw the light of day, uh, I don't know. Like it depends on how how granular you get with chain. Like if I change a spirit a lot, is that still the same spirit even if it has a different name or the same name? Uh, you know, probably on the order of ten or twenty spirits that didn't come out, mm-hmm. but many of them were very rudimentary. My very mm-hmm. very very initial spirits were actually um, a generic presence track, and Their unique power cards were just random draws from the minor power deck. Uh, that was in the very early days. Okay, and were they, were they played by the by the players already? Yep. Or, well, yeah, I, okay. tried, I I did them, but then you know I also had players doing them. Uh, Spirit Island has always been tricky for me to like. By now, I can play a two-handed game without trouble. Mm. Um, I'm slower than I would be at playing two one two solo games. Uh, but back in the early days, like I was, you know not super practiced at the game i was just inventing it so trying to play multiple spirits at once was sort of a uh, yeah okay so i was like you know <laughs> grabbing friends to try and help me out uh this was this was back before like this was an incredibly early rough days uh so it was like all right you know i was very upfront about it i'm like you know this is a super rough prototype you're going to be this spirit and your special powers are going to be grab three cards these three things <laughs> you are apparently a spirit of vines disease and fire okay great there you go um, <laughs> Uh, and uh, because I wanted to get a sense for sort of the overall how to cost the power cards and what the power level of the game should be and how the invaders worked uh, before I started getting into innate powers and how they like I wanted to get the bedrock down before I built the the 
the soil and the soil down before I built the foundations and the foundations down before I built the first story. Um, and sometimes I'd be wrong and I'd have to go back into a lower level and then everything on top of it will kind of need, need adjusting again. But to the extent possible, I tried to pin down the, the deeper, more pervasive pieces before uh, going to small details about a single thing, which were easily changed. Yeah, we already spent more than an hour. Time goes by so quickly. So um, shall we transition into uh, the community questions? <laughs> When I interview a game developer, I really like to give the community um, the opportunity to ask some questions. Um, and I did the same for Spirit Island, um, but I didn't have a clue that I was going to open Pandora's box there. Uh, I got so many <laughs> questions from the community that we could probably fill two more hours. That alone shows, um, I think, how incredibly well the game is received by the board game community. And that already should be a big compliment for you. Um, but I yes. don't think that we will be able to answer all of the questions. Um, just, no. just because of, of the amount of questions that I got. And I have to really have to apologize, uh, for that right now for the, uh, by the people that, uh, sent me all these great questions. Uh, but we will try really hard to get, um, answered as many as possible. Um, so maybe you can try to keep your answers short, Eric, and then we can go through a bunch of these questions. I'll try to be brief. Yeah, we, we have, um, we have also addressed some of them already. So let me go through the list. There's one question. How come there is no real wind spirit or spirit of the air? Would you ever do an ice spirit from a non-tropical island? That question is from Brandon Slate uh, from Board Game Geek. So for wind spirit, lightning swift strike is a wind spirit. It's just slightly more aspected towards lightning. Uh, and aspects which are coming out in Jagged Earth, the, the one of the aspects, I can't remember if it's in Jagged Earth or the promo pack, uh, leans Lightning Swift Strike more towards being wind. It gives it an innate power which keys it more heavily off air. The uh, As for more of a pure, just focused wind spirit, I have tried to do several and none of them have ended up panning out. It is something I would like to do. Uh, we will see if any of the ideas I have end up bearing fruit. Uh, for an ice spirit, I'm no, not going to say never, but very, very unlikely. It would not normally exist on Spirit Island or any islands near Spirit Island, so probably not. Maybe there must be an ice age uh, on the Spirit mm. Island first. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, okay, let's go to the next question. It's a more general question. Um, what advice do you have for newer gamers who are hesitant to try complex asynchronous strategy games like Spirit Island? I'd say... First of all, uh, the point of playing games is to have fun, and if you don't think you'd have fun playing a more complex game, that's fine. Uh, the I, I, I feel like Spirit Island did very well in part because of the, the five years of development and in part because the number of gamers who wanted a highly complex co-op increased between uh, 2012 when I started development in earnest and uh, 2017 when it came out. And part of that is because as you play more games, your brain will learn to handle more complex rule sets. It will chunk them out better. So have fun playing games and you will, you know, slowly get better at playing complex games over time. Um, if you specifically want to make the jump up because you know people uh, who are playing these games and you want to play with them, then starting with co-ops can be great because you can uh, play alongside them. Uh, 
finding how to play videos can be great because a lot of people find that easier than parsing a rulebook or having somebody teach you in person is often fantastic. Finding games where uh, where it's like, okay, it doesn't, if you make a little rules mistake, it just doesn't really matter uh, is good. And also uh, play for the experience. Like if, if, you know, reconcile, well, I may not win this because, you know, winning is the goal of the game, but my, my objective in playing to, to, to win it is to have fun. And, you know, you can still have a fun time even when you lose. That's a very good answer. Let's get on to the next question. Um, what are your number top top three must play games for raising uh, young board gamers? The question is from S Doubleday on Board Game Geek. So I will first give the cop out answer, which is nonetheless true, which is whatever they really like. Uh, like right now, my seven-year-old really likes Dominion, and so really? if I play Dominion with him. He enjoyed. Yeah, he. I started him off uh, as he started to learn to read, just with a very simple set of kingdom cards, because he could tell like actions, buys, cards. You know, begin with A, B, and C, and plus coins was obvious. And I didn't use a full ten. I used like five or six stacks, and uh, he really took to it and really enjoyed it it takes him a while to play because uh he's you know takes him longer to parse the cards and just physically manipulating them takes him longer but it brings his enthusiasm and so like my answer is whatever they really like uh my 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 younger kid really enjoys blockus uh and so i play blockus with him because that's what gets him fired up about playing board games so try different things and see what they really enjoy uh there's a lot of It also depends on age range. Like if you're talking super young, like, you know, two, three years old, there's some good stuff like My First Orchard, which is basically a game entirely about learning to take turns. Uh, Peaceable Kingdom is putting about a, is putting out a huge variety of wonderful uh, uh, co-op games for very young kids. And so the, there's a bunch of them uh, which are out there. I can't remember the names of all of them offhand. Uh, I tend to personally gravitate towards ones which are also fun for grown-ups like blockus is simple enough that kids can get it it's also great fun for grown-ups so that's a nice sort of way for the two worlds to meet and when i'm playing dominion with my seven-year-old like you know it may be a slower than usual game mm. but it is also a game that i'm thinking about because it's a you know i gotta think about it it's not you know i'm not uh i'm not playing uh, a game which is made only for four-year-olds um some others neat ones which are on the boundary uh Monster Factory is a neat one. Uh, uh, Donald X, creator of Dominion, did this. It's a neat tiling game about making monsters. Um, Spot It is fun and, and quick. It's spotting similar things between uh, pairs of cards. Uh, but you know, I can't give a single definitive list because, like, you know, maybe your kid is way more into stacking games than my kids mm. are, and so, like, you know, tier off tier, uh, animal upon animal is is going to be the thing which really gets them fired up. So, yeah, but this is there we a, great, go. a great list. I have to uh, to try a lot of games from that list probably with my kids. Um, maybe a short insight. My son currently uh, enjoys a game that is really stupid because it is a uh, it is a dexterity game where you um, have a frog and you try to um, the the frog tries to jump into a well. Uh-huh. And you do this with with your with your fingers um, by mm-hmm. flipping him there. And yep. It is the game is I think it's 30 years old. It's a really old mm-hmm. game, and it is for me as a grown-up almost 
almost impossible to do it um, with uh, with skill. It is it is really luck luck driven how how these how these frogs end up in the well. And yes. my son maybe hits one out of fifty. But he really, yep. but he really enjoys the game, and I play it with him, of yep. course. Um, yeah. And the game that my daughter enjoys, she's five year old, um, is uh, double, uh, double, where you have to spot um, the same images of um, animals, for example, on two different oh. ca different cards, um, and you do have to do it um, uh, quicker than the other or faster yes, than the other. Yes, that others. is. Uh, th That is uh, in the U.S. That is spotted. That is one of the ones I mentioned. Ah, okay. Uh, oh, it's a, different names in different yeah. name in Europe. Mm -hmm. It's a different name. It's a double in Germany, and um, yep. it's it's a really really nice game because um, I can play it with my three year old son. It's um, yeah. And, um, yeah. He sometimes no, it's, it's faster than than me. <laughs> yeah. Yep. That's um, that's a good uh, game. Sometimes I've also found uh, had some success in uh, uh, doing variants of games uh, and sort of bringing them in and do, sort of teaching them. You can change the rules of a game as long as everybody buys into it ahead of time. Like, you know, change the rules out from underneath somebody, mm -hmm. not so good. But, you know, uh, uh, which then sort of gets him in the direction of game design, which is kind of neat. And also allows you to do things like, you know, take a game which is a little more complex than they might want and bring it to their level. Or take a game which is a little more random than they might want and start introducing interesting special powers, which you give to give you something to think about. Yeah, exactly. My, also, so, my daughter is also very good uh, by... Uh, in changing the rules when when she's on the losing streak. <laughs> that yes, <laughs> <laughs> but that's another thing. I know how that goes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, then um, let's maybe go on to the next questions. Maybe we can answer a couple more, not all of them. Maybe not doing so well with answering rapidly. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm I'm not helping here as well. So let's see what we have on the list. Um, there's one more question regarding the balancing of Spirit Island. Yes. So how did you test Spirit Island for balance? And um, the the question is that you really can't possibly test every combination. So yes. was there a approach of good good enough kind of situation when you tested it? Um, the question is from Nova Therum um, on Reddit. Uh, yes. So the main challenge in the initial game, which uh, the expansion Branch and Claw, which was published at the same time as the base game, was originally part of the base game. It got pulled out for a combination of cost reasons and uh, complexity reasons. So all 12 of the initial spirits were being developed at the same time and getting them balanced was, as I mentioned earlier, kind of a process of playing all of them enough to get a general feel and then sort of, you know, raising the, the ones which were on the lower side up and bringing the ones from the higher side down uh, with 12. It was actually 14 uh, uh, two got to late stages, but didn't see publication. We were able to test most of the combination, not any single individual, but like overall, all the two spirit combinations did see did see play, and mostly it worked out. You know, just sort of getting that, doing that. Um, but it it just took time. Uh, there were some things like uh, shadows flicker, like flame, ended up not super weak or anything, but like a hair on the weak side, just because it was too strong and it got a late debuff, and that debuff went a little too far. Mm. Um, you know, so, but it's all within uh, a reasonable band of, of fun where it's not like one player sitting around like, I can literally do nothing while you're doing everything. You know, uh, it's all, uh, you know, and, and it's, you know, a player who can play against a certain level adversary with one spirit can expect that if they go to a different spirit, that's not going to change super much. You know, again, you know, learning, you can learn a spirit better. And once you do that, then you'll be better with that spirit. But 
uh, if it's spirits that they're playing for the first time. Mm. For the new development for Jagged Earth, where we're adding more spirits, that got tricky because then it became even more sort of combinatorically difficult. Of course. And so there we had to rely a lot more on playtester, like expert playtesters who could be like, all right, I'm playing this new spirit and it seemed overpowered in this way, but this particular major power came out in this game and I was playing alongside of Bringer of Dreams and Nightmares, which offered a lot of pushes and heavy fear generation, which fed into this strategy. So even though it was overpowered in this game, I don't think it was overpowered overall. Basically, they could use their human judgment to be able to say, you know, having played a lot of Spirit Island, it felt like this spirit was okay. Similarly with playing against different adversaries. There's three new ones coming out. There's four which are already printed. And so... You know, even just playing a single, even if you're playing solo games with no interactions, you had to do, okay, all right, are we going to test this against, you know, every adversary, every level of every adversary? You just can't mm, manage that. No. And impossible. so we had to rely on sort of playtester expertise and senses of, all right, this feels about on par with everything else. It seems about as difficult as it should, given all my knowledge about the game. So how do, how um, do you look at the designs of the Checkered Earth spirits? that have evolved from the original ones? That is a question from T. Johnson of, uh, on BoardGameGeek as well. I am very happy that I got the chance to go further with them. Uh, the Trickster Spirit is fairly different mechanically, but not different conceptually than its original uh, incarnation would have been had it been published back with uh, Branch and Claw. Uh, and I'm pleased with the directions it went. Uh, it, it got to do some neat stuff and became more thematic in the process. And I am immensely glad that Shroud of Silent Mist, or uh, originally it was, uh, it was under a different name, but it became uh, Shroud of Silent Mist and uh, Vengeance is a Burning Plague. There was a spirit which was both mists and disease, which got split out into one of disease and vengeance and one of, of mists. And I'm so glad they got split because each spirit got so much more room to become itself. Uh, there was just too much crammed into the one spirit before, and now... Each one has enough space to breathe. Uh, vengeance, as it is, is already high complexity because it has so much going on. But uh, they're 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 very much themselves. Another question, and it's a it's a really tough one. I'm not sure if you are able to answer it. We'll see. Um, okay. The question is: Is Eric Royce from the future? Because Spirit Island feels ahead of its time. Oh. Uh, <laughs> well. Are you? <laughs> I shouldn't answer that. Probably. Um, <laughs> There's definitely part of me which will be from the future. I appreciate the compliment. I often wonder, it took so long to bring Spirit Island uh, and Science or Die to fruition that, I, you know, when Spirit I, when I first started working on Spirit Island, the whole uh, play your cards and then take an action to reclaim all of them and gain the, gain the efficiency as you do more of them, you didn't see as much of that. But then, like, uh, Lewis and Clark came out and they did the same thing. I'm like, oh, everybody's going to think that I stole it. Ah. Um, <laughs> So from my perspective, I feel very much like, you know, Spirit Island was from from the past. And I like, you know, okay, I want to get it out there soon so that it's not uh, uh, so that the market hasn't passed it by. But thankfully, it seems that that was not the case. Um, same thing with Science or Die. Like, I want to get it out there as soon as I can uh, so so that, the uh, you know, it's uh, some of, you know, some folks I know have designs they've been working on for a long time where they say, yeah, this would have been a great game if it had been published in 2010. But by this point, You know, the market mm -hmm. just isn't, you know, it's going to want something different or something more or something other than what it is. And I'm, you know, that's the one area where I, I sometimes feel 
it's a, a little tough juggling the game design and the family where it's like, okay, I don't mind that I'm slower in general principle, but that feeling of, oh, I really wanted to get out there now because I know that this game is a good fit for the market this very instant uh, is a very strong impulse sometimes. Yeah. Let's summarize some of the questions that I have here too. Maybe one question because I have a lot of questions um, regarding new expansions and versions of the game. So okay. maybe you can just talk a little bit about what is planned with the Spirit Island universe because um, I have questions about if Jagged Earth is the last expansion or if there are still ideas to grow yep. the island further. From Fabian on Board Game Geek, I have questions about um, if um, you want to... Um, create other games in the universe of Spirit Island, maybe? Um, or um, if you want to create a, a legacy version of the game, for example? Um, and also questions about uh, the digital version, which I um, also heard is up there at the moment. So maybe you can um, talk a little bit about um, the idea of the universe and um, maybe additional expansions or the, in the digital version. Sure. I can't. Uh, speak definitively about anything that the publisher greater than games is going to do because it is totally their call. Uh, but I can give you a rough idea of my thoughts and my intentions. Jagged Earth is almost certainly not the last expansion. Uh, I am planning on uh, looking into the feasibility, uh, uh, the like starting initial exploratory design on a Dahan centric expansion to see if that would work out. Um, You know, I would love to make the Dahan a playable faction. Uh, we'll see if that actually ends up being feasible. The uh, There will almost certainly uh, be an expansion at some point with more spirits. Um, the you know, I don't know anything about timetable, but no, Jagged Earth is not the last Spirit Island expansion. Uh, there are loads of people who really enjoy the game and have said they want more, and I love making stuff for it, so we're happy to make more. Um Other things in the world of Spirit Island, I have given thought to it. I'm not doing any active design work on it right now. I have had at least one idea for a game which would be in that world, but it's all very just like in my head, shower thoughts, nothing on paper, not apt to happen anytime soon. Legacy game. Uh, the difficulty with Spirit Island Legacy is that the arc you get over a legacy campaign for a spirit is this arc which you get for a spirit in a single game of Spirit Island. So it would need to be a very different game. I have done, like, sketch out thoughts for, oh, what if we did this and have ideas for, like, okay, you could take a spirit and have it start be very, very small and then grow over the course of the campaign. Um, but it would be, in order for that to work, it would have to be scaling up as you go, going from a very local spirit to a more and more island-wide spirit. It's not impossible, but it's not something I'm really chomping to do either. I have had one or two ideas about legacy games, which are not just Spirit Island in the universe of Spirit Island, but that's even more, you know, sort of out there, maybe who knows, pie in the sky someday. Uh, legacy games are an awesome concept, and I totally want to design one someday, but they also take even more time than, than regular board games, and time is my critical supply for <laughs> game design. Uh, for, let's see, uh, what else was there? Uh, digital version. The digital yes. version is up on Indiegogo right now. Uh, if you go to Indiegogo.com uh, and search for Spirit Island, you should find the Spirit Island digital tabletop game. It's being done by Handelabra, who brought uh, uh, Sentinels of the Multiverse and Aeon's End uh, to Steam. 
the uh, Indiegogo is for Steam only, although if Handelabra's past habits are any indication, if the uh, once the Steam is done, then mobile is likely to follow soon after. Again, I can't speak for them, so I can't say that for certain, but uh, I think they address this on the main campaign page. They also talk about why they're on Indiegogo instead of Kickstarter. Uh, were there any other th- were there any things I missed there? No, no, you didn't. But maybe, all the notes, awesome. Yeah, but maybe a follow-up question on the digital version. Um, are you planning on changing some aspects of the game in the digital version? Maybe something that you uh, that you want to do right now because you have the chance to 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 change something. Uh, there. Not really. Mechanics-wise, it's going to be identical. There is always the possibility that they'll do fun stuff with the digital version that you can't do with the tabletop version, like having the invaders look different depending on which adversary, which you know, which nation you're playing against, uh, or things like that. Uh, you know, adding you know, and I'm sound effects and visual effects for powers going off, which is something I'd love to have in the tabletop game, but that just doesn't work. Uh, but I do not believe. That, no, it's intended to be the tabletop experience as a digital game. I do not. It's not being developed in directions which are, you know, completely and utterly different. Okay. And are you planning um, on analyzing some of the data that is gathered from the digital game? I know, for example, that a lot of digital games use it to improve their balance of the game. For example, that would be something that you could do as well. Possibly. That's something I'm still in discussions with uh, with Handelabra, and it, it would have to be a fair amount of data because it's one of those things where the amount of variability in game setup is sufficiently high. Like if I see like, Oh, you know, spirit X loses against adversary Y at level Z, uh, more often than this other spirit does, that's only meaningful if the same people are playing them because there's player skill involved too. So if there's enough data, then maybe it becomes useful, but it'll have to be a lot of data. Yeah, so. but but after uh, um, all of the listeners listened to this show and um, supported your campaign on Indiegogo, that will not be a problem anymore. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> okay, I, I think we answered enough questions here. Um, once again, sorry to everyone who submitted a question that we uh, weren't able to answer today, but um, we have almost one and a half hour now on the clock, so I think we should uh, now come to an end. Anything else that you would like to mention, Eric? Uh, no, I think that thank you so much for having me on. It's been great talking to you. Uh, and uh, I, have, I enjoy listening to Nerd Lab and I think you are doing awesome stuff here. Thanks a lot, Eric. Um, it was a pleasure to have you on the show today. Um, it was a lot of fun to talk to you. You are a real master of this craft. Maybe you can, um, can give people uh, an idea how they can find you if they want to, want to contact you or follow you on some of the social media channels if you use them. Sure, yeah. Uh, I am on BoardGameGeek. The username is Darker, D-A-R-K-E-R, so you can drop me a geek mail there. I'm also on Twitter as R. Eric Royce. That's R-E-R-I-C-R-E-U-S-S. And uh, you can also reach me via email at eroyce at gmail.com, E-R-E-U-S-S at gmail.com. I do keep a mailing list of if you are interested in uh, one, in hearing when I have new games coming out, uh, then I will send an email to that list generally once if it goes to crowdfunding and then once if it's retail, maybe once if it goes to digital, uh, very low, you know, low bandwidth. Uh, so if you want to be on that, just email me your email address and say so. 
And uh, that's most of the places that I tend to hang out. I'm not on Facebook so much, uh, and I don't have my own website, although maybe I should get around to that. But you have a designer diary on uh, Board Game Geek, for example, for Spirit Island. Yes. Um, yeah, right. yeah, I have. Uh, there's both the huge mega one, which got posted mm -hmm. by W. Eric Martin. It's actually an agglomeration. If you go to my BGG profile and then click on blogs, then uh, it's actually like nine separate entries. Uh, you'll see a whole bunch about the design of Spirit Island, and I'm hoping to get something up about the design for Jagged Earth before it comes out. Yeah, perfect. So thanks a lot, Eric. It was a pleasure to have you, and um, I hope we'll have the chance to do this in the future again for one of your Likewise. new games. Thank you so much, Marvin. Okay, that's it for the show today. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening. And until next week, keep shooting for the moon and nerd like a boss.